Support for this JCMS Editor's Choice podcast is provided by AbbVie and made possible through the Canadian Dermatology Association Corporate Supporter Program. Well, hi there, and welcome back to JCMS Author Interviews, but it really is an author interviews this time. It's our Editor's Choice edition. And today I'm going to be speaking about something that is topical and right in front of us, and that is COVID vaccination. And to help me understand this better, I've asked Dr. Mark Kirchhoff to help me run through some scenarios with our patients and help us to understand the vaccinations that are going to become commonplace in our practices. Mark is, as you know, the division head of dermatology in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa, and he practices at the Ottawa Hospital. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Kirchhoff. All right, well, welcome back, Mark, and thanks again for joining me. Thank you. I'm really excited to be talking about uh, COVID vaccinations, as you might imagine. So I am going to ask you to help me and to help our colleagues address our patients' concerns, understand a little bit about more, more about the viruses, particularly the adenovirus uh, uh, story. So I'm going to let you start. I'll interrupt you every once in a while, but uh, help us understand these things. All right. So uh, let's let's first start by giving a quick overview of where we are in the vaccination process for COVID-19. So as everyone knows, um, the uh, Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine has now been approved and has been delivered. And the first injections have been given here in Canada, and that is an mRNA vaccine. We are expecting the Moderna, uh, which is also an mRNA vaccine, to be approved within the next few weeks and the first doses to be arriving in Canada by the end of the month. And then shortly after that, we expect uh, the adenovirus um, vaccines. uh, And there are two of them that are currently under review with Health Canada. And uh, one of them is the AstraZeneca Oxford adenovirus vaccine. And the uh, other one is the Janssen or Johnson & Johnson adenovirus vaccine. Uh, and we expect those to likely be approved uh, in the new year, early in the new year, and then um, doses to be delivered by the end of January or into February. That's sort of the expectation. And so the two major platforms that we are currently looking at is the mRNA and the adenovirus. So I'll just give you a quick uh, overview of how each of those work so you can explain them to your patients in case they ask, you know, am I going to be a mutant when I get these vaccines? Is it going to change my DNA? Is it going to integrate into my own uh, DNA? Um, So the uh, mRNA um, vaccine is basically a piece of mRNA from the SARS-CoV-2 virus that encodes for the spike protein, which is a surface protein uh, on the virus. Uh, And that's then inserted into a piece of RNA that is recognized by our human ribosomes inside the cell, allowing it to produce the protein, the spike protein. And that is then expressed by our cells in high quantities and then recognized by our immune system as being foreign. And so we develop uh, antibody and T cell responses against that. It never enters the nucleus of the cell. It uh, just enters the cell uh, um, in the cytoplasm. Um, and so there's no concern for integration, uh, and the results are quite good. The other one is the adenovirus vector. And these are both, uh, I'll have to say, these are both unique platforms that have been developed, 
so the adenovirus uh, vector uh, uses the adenovirus, and, and they prefer to use adenovirus that we have not seen. As you, you may know, we are exposed to adenoviruses on a regular basis. They cause things like the common cold. And uh, if you used an adenovirus that you had been exposed to previously, you can imagine your body would reject that vaccine rather quickly. So um, the Oxford AstraZeneca uses a chimpanzee adenovirus, and uh, the Janssen uses an adenovirus uh, that is uncommon, we'll say, that uh, most people have not seen and not been exposed to. And uh, within this adenovirus, they actually take out the replicating machinery. So these viruses cannot reproduce. Um, they have the capsid and they have the, the sort of the start and the end of the virus, but the ability of this virus to replicate in, inside our body does not exist. Uh, and then they replace that with, uh, again, the, the uh, DNA for the spike protein. So this is a DNA virus at some level. Um, and uh, basically the adenovirus, uh, once it gets injected into you, enters the cell and the DNA of this virus enters the nucleus. It never gets incorporated into our DNA, but then that uh, DNA gets translated in, or uh, trans, uh, it gets changed into an RNA, and that RNA then gets uh, translated into a protein, again, the same spike protein. And so it, ultimately, both of these vaccines, the, the goal is to produce the spike protein that we then develop an immune response to. And this spike protein is very important because it's the protein interacts with the ACE2 receptor uh, and allows uh, SARS-CoV-2 to enter our cells uh, and cause an infection. Uh, and so the antibodies block that process, but we also develop T-cell responses that uh, kill any infected cells very quickly. So when we talk about mutation in this virus, the COVID virus, is the spike protein pretty stable? It is. So they've done lots of analysis. As you know, they can track who got infected when, you know, there was some new data that's showing that California maybe had initial infections as early as December uh, based on um, the uh, uh, blood results. So people that were collecting blood for blood transfusions did some analysis and said, oh, wait a minute, we've seen there's probably infections that occurred very early on. And then you can track the progression and how these viruses moved across the world based on these minor mutations in the virus. All viruses mutate over time. Um, but these are very minor mutations. The spike protein is very stable, um, and there hasn't been any major structural differences to the spike protein across the board. Okay, so one for the scientists, and um, and the idea here is that with we might not have to take multiple vaccines, each one attacking a different part of the virus. It doesn't appear that way. So based on the results that have been released uh, thus far, these vaccines are highly efficacious in, in real world um, experience, right? So basically they vaccinate the, the participants in these, in these trials, and then they send them out in the world, and it seems that they are uh, very well protected against infection with SARS-CoV-2. And uh, those that do develop COVID-19 have much, much milder symptoms and nobody develops any severe disease. So it is a very efficacious um, vaccine against this infection. Okay, and clearly the one thing that, that I'm hearing from the patients that are asking me is about the adenovirus and about, and, and I like to use the non-replicating 
because that's the bit people are very frightened of. Exactly. So when you, when you hear about adenovirus, you might think, oh, I'm being injected with a virus. But the key thing to emphasize to your patients is that this is a non-replicating viral vector. It does not replicate. It doesn't have the ability to replicate. It, it can't replicate. So it basically inserts what it needs to, and then it disappears. It's merely a, a transport vehicle. Okay, so let's go directly to the next question that I get from my patients is, will it take and me? So this is my, these are my biologic patients, and we'll focus there to start because it, it's the commonest, I think, immune modulating uh, medication that we currently use. Will it take? Um, do I have to stop my biologic? Um, now, now that I know it's inactivated, it's, it's not live, I'm comfortable taking it. But now as a physician, do I have to stop the biologic? So whenever we look at a vaccine, we have to try to evaluate safety and efficacy. And as you pointed out, uh, these are non-live vaccines. So we are familiar with those. We use those and we allow our patients on biologics to be exposed to them uh, on a regular basis. These are, however, two novel platforms that have not been used uh, previously. So there might be some trepidation associated with that. Um, so I will say before going into some of the analysis that, you know, none of these studies incorporated or had participants who were on immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory therapies. And therefore, we don't have placebo-controlled phase three data to support a decision one way or another. But that's often the case in our clinics, right? We, we make decisions based on the best evidence we have. And this is the similar situation we are at right now. So the key thing to do in these situations is to go back in the literature and say, well, what experiences and what evidence is there in relation to these biologics and, and vaccinations? And there's actually a very good uh, CME uh, that was published in the JCMS uh, on, uh, on vaccinations that, that I encourage everyone to go back and review because it, it provides excellent background for, um, for clinicians on how to counsel patients on what our experiences are. And if you look at that, there really is no safety risk. So with, with any non-live attenuated, so just a, a non-live vaccine, there is no real risk to our patients who are on biologics. Then the next question is what about efficacy? Um, and I will say that the vast majority of studies that have been done state that the efficacy of vaccines is maintained for patients that are on biologic therapy. Now, we have very little data. The caveat to that is we have very little data on the IL-23 inhibitors because they're the newest class of biologics. Um, but we can make some supposition based on uh, information for the IL-17 inhibitors because we know that in the pathway, IL-23 regulates the Th17 cells which produce IL-17. So it's, you know, it's, we can call it further upstream perhaps. Um, so I, I think based on all of the data, there does not appear to be a major decrease in efficacy. The only caveat for that, I will say, is rituximab. So uh, we know that rituximab depletes B cells, and we know that it will reduce uh, vaccine efficacy uh, rather significantly. Um, and so any patient who is on rituximab 
you probably should not be vaccinated because they will not produce or may not produce an effective uh, protective response. Uh, and so you should wait at least five months uh, or more. Uh, so after the last rituximab infusion before giving a, a patient uh, this vaccine to ensure that they develop a robust response. Um, and then for the TNFs, there is what I will call a, a few studies that have suggested a slight decrease in, in protective antibodies, but overall those patients still had a level of protection above that, you know, before they were basically vaccinated. So vaccination uh, did provide some level of protection. Uh, it may have just been diminu uh, diminished in some patients taking TNF inhibitors. Um, so overall, I think safety is not a concern and efficacy, perhaps uh, for some of them, a uh, greater concern than others. Uh, for the newer biologics, I don't perceive a risk. There's been some good studies uh, and, and reviews and reports that have shown that patients on IL-17 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors produce uh, titers to the same degree. Um, and then if, we, you know, if we're moving away from psoriasis and uh, the IL-4-13 inhibitor, um, dupilumab, uh, there is also good evidence to support that those patients produce um, a protective titers. Okay, well, take me from that comment into the conventional systemic therapies, the methotrexate, cyclosporin, and I can pretty much guess what you're going to say about prednisone, but help me uh, through this. So this is, this is a much uh, more complicated answer. Um, and so... What will I say in terms of safety? Um, again, there is good data to support that non-live uh, vaccines are safe in patients who are on these uh, oral immunotherapies. Uh, and I'll argue that some of them are immunosuppressive and some of them are immunomodulatory. That's a very uh, difficult discussion to get in that I don't think we have time for tonight. So we'll just call them all immunotherapies. Um, so these these patients seem to do fine. There's no there's no increased risk of poor outcomes. Um, however, efficacy is much more variable. And um, compared to the biologics, patients on these oral immunotherapies uh, have a higher degree of variability in their response. Um, and so there have been papers that have been published that have suggested in order to maximize the efficacy of a vaccine, you should stop their oral immunotherapy two weeks before injection and then hold it for two weeks after. Now that becomes a little more difficult when you think about the vaccines uh, that are currently approved or gonna be approved for COVID-19 and three out of the four require two doses uh, and they have to be spaced apart 21 to 28 days, depending on which one it is which means that patients may be without any oral treatment for two months. Uh, and that is a discussion that you have to have with your patients. If they can tolerate coming off these medications for two months to maximize their immune responses to the vaccine. Obviously, some patients are going to be so severe uh, and say, look, I'm willing to take my risks and we'll see how well uh, my immune system develops protective antibodies, protects, develops uh, T-cell responses 
to the vaccine. And there's other patients who are going to be like, look, I did, I did fine. I'm not going to have a big issue. Maybe on methotrexate. So we know there's not a big flare after I come off this. Maybe it won't be such a big deal. But that's an important discussion to have with your patients. Tell me about the adenovirus in that situation. Same thing. So the adenovirus, again, because it's a non-replicating uh, viral vector, um, it won't have any safety concerns in those patients. Uh, it, you know, methotrexate or cyclosporin or prednisone doesn't magically make the virus suddenly start to replicate. The only thing that it might do is attenuate your immune response to that vaccine. So it might lower your antibody titers. It might lower your T-cell responses. Uh, and that may be um, uh, problematic or may decrease your protection uh, to um, infection later on. Are, they, are the adenovirus vaccines the same time frame? Would they still require that is it second? Are they two-dose vaccines? And are they separated by that 21 or 28 days? So the, the AstraZeneca Oxford is a two-dose uh, vaccination. The Janssen vaccine is a one-dose so that will be an advantage. It is last in line of those four vaccines, uh, so it will be coming the latest, um, but it will likely um, be the one that is going to be adopted worldwide to probably the greatest extent be because it only requires one dose, number one, and number two, it can be stored in a fridge. And so rollout of that vaccine um, with the current logistics we have around the world will be a lot easier. Okay. Well, um, that helps us understand whether or not people are going to be able to receive the virus. Is there, what's the role of antibody testing? So I think that um, if we did antibody testing on, you know, let's say we have to vaccinate 70% of the world, you're looking at, you know, 5 billion people to get immunity. That might be a very expensive endeavor to do antibody testing on everybody especially after you vaccinated them with the vaccine. So you can see the cost suddenly escalate. Um, so I would suggest that antibody testing should only be done in circumstances where there is some doubt uh, and where a person is at a high risk of contracting uh, the infection. Um, uh, but generally speaking, we would hope, again, like we hope in all vaccination programs, that when you have enough of the population vaccinated, even though you, single patient, may have a lower level of protection, the rest of us will protect you from infection because we have developed a good uh, immune response. So that idea of herd immunity will protect the people who are uh, weaker and may not have the same level of protection. So no value then when we look at our biologic patients or, or, or the not so much biologic as these methotrexate cyclosporin injected. I think, I think it would be a value if, if it was very cheap and affordable and accessible. Okay. All of those things are probably not going to happen uh, and, and not on the level that we need to happen, right? We have thousands of patients on these medications and it would be, I think, a logistical endeavor to test all of them for antibody titers. I think the vast majority of patients will develop protective levels of antibodies and T-cell responses. It will be the minority of patients who do not and it would be hard to pick out those individuals. Uh, if we look at transplant patients, they are probably at the highest risk of not developing appropriate antibodies or T-cell responses. And so there might be a population that might be worth studying and doing a small study 
in those patients. And if we see that, let's say, you know, there is a 90% uh, level of protection developed in those patients, then we can be rest reassured that it's probably even better in our patients who are on immunotherapies, oral immunotherapies. It looks like the biggest problem for our patients is going to be coming off treatment in order to be able to be vaccinated. And if they can do that without too much of a flare, or um, then, then it's likely that they will all benefit and the risks are pretty minimal. Yes. I mean, like, like all clinical decisions, it's a risk-benefit discussion. Um, so the risks of staying on therapy and having a potentially lowered immune response for some of these oral immunotherapies um, versus the risk of stopping your therapy and having a major flare of your condition. And we all have these um, patients who we know are just at the borderline of control uh, you know, there's some atopics that I have who are on cyclosporin. You know that if you stop their cyclosporin, they will flare uh, tremendously. And, and that, that can be problematic if that's two months in the middle of winter in Canada. You can imagine they will not be happy patients. Uh, and so some of those patients may be willing to take the risk of lowered uh, responses to the vaccine uh, in exchange for maintenance of their disease control. Uh, so it's a discussion I think we should have with our patients. Um, you know, it's it's hard to give them uh, quantifiable, quantifiable probabilities of the risks. Um, we we know that some people will flare coming off medication, some people will not. Um, so it's hard to quantify that, and it's entirely variable depending on the disease, the extent they had, what treatment they're under. Um, prednisone, another example, if we stop prednisone for anybody, uh, and this is probably more for the rheumatologists, um, uh, they have also a high degree of flaring. Uh, and then, you know, if, if there's the potential for creating long-term damage. So if you have a gastroenterologist who is treating a patient with IBD and they're being suppressed with, you know, biologic prednisone, and what else, uh, and, and you know, to ask them to stop their treatment with the potential of having uh, destruction or death or a damage to the, to the uh, GI tract, uh, that's a bigger ask, I think, of those patients. Um, uh, and for, vac and for uh, sort of for transplant patients, the potential for rejection, obviously, you wouldn't want to stop treatments in those patients. And so it, it's, I think it's an important discussion that we have to have with our patients. Um, I personally uh, would counsel most of them uh, that, uh, you know, why not take the vaccine? It, there's not likely to be a safety signal or a safety concern with, the, with these treatments. Uh, and if you just happen to produce lower titers, well, you know, that'll be okay. Uh, because the, the fact is, is we're going to be wearing masks and isolating and, you know, doing, you know, six... Uh, feet of separation for the next year. So all these protocols are still going to be in place uh, for a while until uh, everyone gets vaccinated. Would it be a reasonable clinical decision to try and get people on the lowest dose possible? Is it is there some quantification to that scale? So if I have somebody on 20 milligrams of methotrexate, if I can get them down to five for a while, is can you have a have a sense that, that might help them? And and the other thing is, <clears throat> is it more important to stop 
the therapy before they get vaccinated or after they get vaccinated? Okay, so that's a that's a multi pronged question. Um, what? Sorry, what was the first part again? <laughs> so, so if I have somebody on twenty milligrams of yes, methotrexate, yes, I remember now. Okay, good. Um, so the the answer to that is that probably yes. So we know that if you can lower the level of uh, immunotherapy, uh, um, you are less likely to suppress the responses to the vaccine. Uh, so if you can lower the cyclosporin to you know, 50 milligrams BID, if you can lower the cyclosporin to 7.5 milligrams uh, once a week, if you can lower the prednisone, uh, then I think that uh, will have beneficial effects for their uh, vaccination. So that was my intuitive thinking. Now, th my next intuitive thinking is, is to sort of say, well, okay, is there any anything to help me make the clinical decision of when to either stop, well, when to stop? Yeah. So if somebody wants to stop, I'm thinking I would stop the before dose and hold the one after they get the vaccine. So the, for the oral immunotherapies, the the because if you look at the half lives of most of them and, and how the studies have been done previously, it's usually two weeks before and two weeks after. And then your your question about which one is is better is it before or after? Um, the I I will argue that it's probably better to get it out of their system uh, and and not have that immunosuppression or immunomodulation uh, when they get the vaccine. Um, because you basically want your immune system functioning relatively normally when you get the injection. Um, and, and then I would argue that, you know, try to delay the next dose as much as possible after the injection, um, because after the injection is when you start mounting those immune responses and replicating those cells. Um, and so if you can maintain off again for two weeks, ideally, that'd be the best, uh, within a few days is, you know, as much as possible, I would say, um, because that's when our, our B cells and that's when you develop this, this replication of all the cells. Um, and that is, is important, uh, uh for developing antibodies and T cells that are going to be protecting you against the vaccine. So that doesn't really answer your question, I guess, because it's both, well, it's both equally at some level. Yeah, there's probably no answer. <laughs> there's, yeah, right? there's probably it, no answer. I, I, there's no right answer. It's just, it just a sense. And, and again, uh, I'll take the opportunity to, to reference the article in JCMS on immunizations. It was, it was certainly in our top five downloads. I think yes. four or 5,000 people downloaded it. it. It's, it's really, it's really a classic um, article on this subject and worth reading and rereading and rereading. Um, yeah. Depending upon the situation that you're clinically put in. Yeah. The one thing I will say is that uh, in parts of it, they're, they're too careful. Um, but that's, you know, the, 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 when you get lots of people together to make a consensus paper and a consensus document, um, they will be, tend to be more careful. Um, and that, that's related more to live vaccinations. We won't get in that today because live vaccines are probably not going to come for COVID-19 to Canada. Um, so, but that's a, another discussion. Okay. Well, um, some special populations. Let's talk about women of childbearing potential. Um, do we have any special considerations? So we, 
there's a few things that I can tell you. Um, we know that women who get COVID-19 while they're pregnant tend to have worse outcomes. So uh, getting COVID-19 while you're pregnant is probably not a good idea. The next question we have to ask, well, what are the risks of vaccinating a woman during her pregnancy? Um, and again, based on other experience with vaccinations, we know that um, vaccinating a, a transplanted patient who's immunosuppressed does not lead to rejection of the organ. So in the same sense, we can think about pregnancy, you know, where the fetus is uh, a transplant or um, is not necessarily, uh, we'll call it, it has, has antigens that are potentially foreign to the host, to the mother in this case. And therefore, um, we would not obviously want to encourage rejection in this process because that can lead to uh, spontaneous abortion, uh, fetal demise, etc. So we know that vaccination does not seem to uh, promote that process. What we do know, however, is that these vaccines um, that are approved or will be approved do have a significant risk of fever. And, and fever during pregnancy is not a good thing. Uh, and so that is uh, something that is to be avoided. And so um, providing adequate, maybe even prophylactic dosing with acetaminophen is probably a good thing uh, if pregnant women want or are choosing to get vaccinated um, to try to limit that fever side effect. Um, in terms of uh, um, problems with the fetus and vaccination, probably not going to be an issue. Uh, and you may, if you, if you argue that you're protecting these women from developing COVID-19 while pregnant, you may protect from the negative outcomes of actually getting infected with the, the, the virus. Um, there are studies and there are a few instances of women who were pregnant uh, during the studies and that data is now being looked at. There's only a few, obviously, um, um, and, but we're still waiting for some of that information to come out. The same... Um, with breastfeeding, uh, likely safe, likely not an issue. Um, transference of antibodies occurs very early on uh, during breastfeeding. Uh, and so there's probably not any risk to the infant uh, during the breastfeeding uh, phase. So we'll go straight through infancy into childhood. Do we, <laughs> do we have any reasonable data on kids with these with these uh, vaccinations yeah they're, they're all being done so i will say that the data is being gathered right now um some some studies included it already as part of their initial phase three so the data will come much quicker some of the the vaccines have to create entirely new trials that are being undertaken and and being done in the near future and so that data is going to be forthcoming um, again I, based on the previous experience we have most vaccines that you give to um, adults are safe in children and conversely most vaccines even children are safe in adults uh, i can't think of a th single example of, of a vaccine that would be dangerous to give in a child um, and, and so um, with that being said, uh, the, we, these are probably going to be safe vaccines for children. 
Uh, obviously, there's a, a certain concern because every time we deal with pediatric patients, we want to make sure we do no harm in those situations. Um, um, but the, the evidence supports that these are probably going to be safe and efficacious in children. Um, the other thing to, to note is that um, children and pediatric uh, patients tend to have a less severe course of COVID-19. And so um, these uh, patients will likely uh, n not need the vaccine as, I will say, as acutely as some of the other populations that we have. So patients who are over 80, patients or people who are working in long-term care facilities. Um, obviously, eventually we would like to vaccinate everybody because we'd like to prevent transmission and reservoirs to occur in schools. Um, but I, I don't think it is uh, the, the most at-risk population for this particular uh, disease. I'm going to leave it there. We've got um, lots of things uh, we've spoken about for people to ruminate about, digest, and put into their clinical practice, which is basically where the rubber is going to hit the road in these discussions and justifying to patients that they should or shouldn't and discussing, as you pointed out earlier, whether or not they should take a risk of their disease flaring in order to get vaccinated. And there's so many nuances to every decision that you can't possibly contemplate everyone, but clearly you've helped us understand the basic thoughts that have to be put into these uh, discussions. So let's reconvene. Um, I, I, I'm sh there's got to be a part two to this. Um, I'll talk to you in the spring um, after a bunch of us hopefully have experienced vaccination by that point. Uh, maybe there'll be new information available to us. And, and we'll start to talk about the longevity of the response as we know more about that whether or not we're going to need boosters, whether or not a double dose would work better in our, in our um, immune-modulated patients and, and, and those sorts of issues that are only going to come from vaccination of the population. Yeah, we, we definitely need uh, registries and, and data to be forthcoming. I've already indicated to, to all my patients who are on biologics, immunosuppressive medications, immunotherapies, uh, who are transplant patients, that when and if they get vaccinated, I, I would love to hear back from them and get their uh, firsthand experience uh, on how they did um, in regards to side effects, um, if they had any severe side effects or any different side effects, uh, and then if, um, uh, you know, they are exposed, do they get COVID, have they ever had COVID previously? So I think there's lots of nuances that need to be looked at. Just, I'll hold you one more second. Are you expecting... Sure. Any issues in this patient group? I, I am not. Uh, I, again, having reviewed the data uh, and based on the mechanism of action of these vaccines, what we know about other vaccines, I am not expecting to have any signal. But, you know, if, when things get released uh, and, and there is mass adoption, not just 45,000 patients, there's, you know, 400 million patients, we might see uh, signals that we did not expect to see. And obviously that's why um, having these registries uh, and reporting any adverse outcomes is gonna be very important going forward. Okay, part two. I'll see you in the spring. Sounds great. Okay, cheers. Cheers. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Kirchhoff. There's a lot there to uh, digest and uh, we'll bring him back for episode uh, two of this uh, vaccination story in the the, uh, spring. So uh, one thing I want to reference back to the um, the JCMS article he referenced and it was in uh, our first issue of 2019, so the January, February issue, entitled Vaccination Guidelines for patients with immune-mediated disorders on immunosuppressive therapies. And it really is a multidisciplinary look at at this uh, subject. So uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the JCMS. And until next time, be good to each other.